Uh, We are in 2 Samuel chapter 23. We're going to be looking at verses 1 to 7 today of God's Word. So let's, let's read God's Word together. Now these are the last words of David. The oracle of David, the son of Jesse, the oracle of the man who was raised on high, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. For does not my house stand so with God? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure. For he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. But worthless men are all like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. But the man who touches them arms himself with iron and the shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. And let's pray and ask for God's blessing on our time. Uh, Father, we come before you, and as we consider these last words of David, uh, we pray that you would illuminate them to us. We, We ask, God, that you would help us to see Uh, That as David looks back at his life, uh, Lord, that where his true meaning, his true significance, his true satisfaction, it rested in you. That no matter what he accomplished, uh, what sins plagued him, at the end of the day, what mattered was the Lord. We pray that that would be the same for each and every one of us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, if you had the chance... And this is a little, this is a little morbid and, and, and sobering to even talk about. But if you had a chance to choose what your last words would be, what would you say? I mean, a lot of the times we don't get that chance. Death comes suddenly and you have some last words, whatever they might have been, but it was not something that you thought out knowing full well that this was it. This is what people are going to remind me of. Uh, As I came through a a list of some famous last words, uh, some last words were comical, even in the face of death. Others were very tragic in the lack of hope. And then some were just inspiring. Uh, Charles Gussman, he was a radio and TV announcer. And his final words were, and now for a final word from our sponsor. For real. That was his final words, very fitting in light of that was something that he said many a times on the radio. And then you have somebody like author Jane Austen who wrote, I want nothing but death. That was her final words. What a sad, kind of a tragic way to look look at life. And then there was Hugh Latimer. Hugh Latimer, if you know anything of church history, he was a bishop in the Church of England And he was burned at the stake because of his his faithfulness to Jesus Christ and the gospel. But listen to what his last words were. He was there alongside of his friend Ridley. They were both burned at the stake. And his last words were, Be of good cheer, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle in England as I hope by God's grace shall never be put out. How inspiring to encounter death with that kind of 
confidence and conviction and hope. You see, when we talk about these last words, these words at these moments in time, they're precious because of the closure that they bring. This is the end. It's the the lasting memory often left behind with those remaining. And that's what we're going to hear today. We're going to hear David's final words. Uh, as, he, as king, he, he uses the occasion to exalt God from first to last as he considers his time as king and as he looks his head at the king of king. He puts the focus upward on the Lord. So that's what we're going to do today. Uh, and hopefully we do that every week, but this particular week in our passage, we're going to put the focus upward. We're going to look at a Godward reflections, four Godward reflections on the kingship and the kingdom. If you're taking notes, we're going to start a time with the, the position. Uh, we're going to see the position of king. We're going to see David kind of reflecting on his identity of who he is, of, of how he got here. Secondly, we're going to see the preview. We're going to see ultimately David pointing towards Jesus, that there are some prophetic words in our passage today that's ultimately found and fulfilled in Christ. Uh, Then we're going to consider the promises where David has hope. Remember, he's about to die. So this is going to be it. And, And as he's looking at, and it's not peace and quiet around him in the world and the kingship, and he's going to have uh, sons that are going to try to take the, the throne from Solomon. It just, it's a mess. And in the midst of all of that, we see where David's confidence lies, and that's in the promises of God. And then we'll finish up our time with the problems that even in the midst of all of this, as God were focused, David is not naive. He understands that there are obstacles still facing him and the future kings that will sit on his throne. So let's get started. Let's pick up at verse one as we see the position. And as I said, we're really going to see where David's identity was lying. Uh, if you remember, now it's been a couple weeks, so we did uh, two weeks for Easter, Palm Sunday and an actual Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. The week before that, we were in chapter 22. And if you remember, this is all part, the last four chapters in Second Samuel are a part of the epilogue. And specifically, I talked about that the epilogue is divided up in a chiastic structure. It's a kind of a literary device within Hebrew, specifically even in Hebrew poetry. But it would go A, B, C, C1, B1, A1. And each section corresponds. So we're going to see the sins of Saul in the very beginning, and we're going to see the sin of David with the census. Last, uh, then we, we saw uh, David's mighty men. They're going to be B and B1. And then the middle of the chiastic structure is really the focus of the epilogue. And it was last week, or last week in Second Samuel that we were in, it was the Psalm of David, which was ultimately Psalm 18. And then this week, these last words of David. And, and what's in the middle tends to be the focus. Now, we don't know completely if these are the last, last words of David. Because once again, with the epilogue, we don't know where everything completely lines up chronologically. Because there are a, another potential last words of David. You can look at it later, First Kings chapter 2, where he's speaking to his son Solomon. So whether these are the last, last words, or these are, are last words that sum up well kind of the end of, of David's life and his king, I, I don't think it's necessarily a, a big uh, uh, matter to argue over, to focus in on. The point is, this is kind of the end for David. 
And this is what David has to say. So read verse 1 with me again. It says, Now these are the last words of David, the oracle of David, or the declaration of David, the son of Jesse. The son of Jesse. Notice the humble origins that David is highlighting. He is the son of Jesse. Why is that humble? Because Jesse was, a, was, relatively speaking, a nobody. Jesse's one claim to fame was he was the grandson of Ruth and Boaz. So besides that, Jesse's not this prominent figure in the Bible. He's not this prominent name. He's not, not somebody that would be like, yeah, I, I'm, I'm related to where you would name drop Jesse. There was these humble origins. And this is very different if you know anything about the ancient Near East. Because the ancient Near East, the kings loved to have a resume with their lineage. That they love to be tied to a very important person, prominent families. But they didn't stop there. The ancient Near East kings, they would often declare that they were related to the gods. So that was the impressive thing. You'd be like a son of, of Zeus or things like that. Like they were, they, they, even though obviously that weren't really related to these gods that aren't really gods at all. But David here in the moment, the humility, he says... I was the son of Jesse. But not only is he the son of Jesse, if you remember the son of Jesse element, he was like the low man of the totem pole in the family of Jesse. If you recall in 1 Kings chapter, 1 Samuel chapter 16, when Samuel comes to anoint one of Jesse's sons to be king, he goes through the whole line of sons. And every single one, God's like, yep, that's not it. That's not it. That's not it. And then Samuel asks Jesse, are all your sons here? And Jesse responds, there remains yet the youngest, but behold, he's keeping the sheep. So like even in Jesse's, who's a nobody of his sons, the one who's probably the least esteemed was David. And yet that is the one that God handpicked, that ordained, that chose to be king. So he, the humility here. But not only that, the humble origins, I want us to notice the passive role David played in becoming king. It says, the oracle of the man who was raised on high. And the focus David is making is that God raised him to be king. David did not climb the ladder to be king. We talk often in success in our world, climbing the corporate what? corporate ladder. And, and, and sometimes you'll have somebody who's really wealthy. He's a, a self-made man self-made millionaire, and, and they're able to look back and say, you know, I, I worked really hard, I studied hard, I took risk, I did all of these things, and it's like so impressive that they did this, they got themselves to this point, this mountaintop in the world, whether it's in their business, in the sports world, whatever it is, look what I have done. And David here says, look at what God has done. It's that active language where passive. David didn't raise anything. No, God raised David. Paul understood his apostleship in the same way. First or Second Timothy 1 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. So he understood that God is the one who got him where he was today. But not only that, we see grace and mercy focused here in the passage. It says that he is the anointed, that is the Messiah, the Christos 
of God, but it says of the God of who? Who? Jacob. Why is that significant? Now, one, it does tie to the promises of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but I think there's more going on here when he talks about Jacob. And then when you think of Jacob, you think of God being gracious and merciful and patient. What was Jacob's, Jacob's name? What did it mean? He was the deceiver. And he lived up to his name. He stole the birthright from his brother. He was constantly manipulating. He, he, he tricked his, his father-in-law. He just, he did stuff like that time and again. That he was not that impressive. And yet God not only forgave Jacob, God used Jacob. God blessed Jacob. And I think it's fitting that David would associate himself with the God of Jacob because David knew Jacob and David were, were kindred spirits. I mean, think about it. Think of the criminals. Think about uh, when they're, they're looking for somebody or the police are, are, are running uh, records on somebody. The, often, if somebody is, is quite the criminal, they'll have a very big rap sheet. He was arrested for assault, for theft, for this, for that. Just kind of go, go, go. Like, and and the, the more serious the criminal, the more uh, concerned you would be with the person that you're about to arrest is the bigger the rap sheet. And David understood that. I remember this is at the end of David's life. This is not David right after he kills Goliath. This is David after he committed adultery. This is David after he had Uriah killed. This is David after his son raped his daughter and he did nothing about it. This is David who's had a, a, a slew of concubines. This is David who comes back and locks up the concubines. He provides for them, but their life is pretty much over. This is the David that we're speaking of. And he understood that the only way that I'm even in relationship with God, if you recall what God promised David through Nathan, but I have forgiven you of your sins. I have, I've taken care of your sin. He knew it was God's grace and mercy. That God is the only one who got him where he is today. In other words, God is not simply the God of the kept together. Isn't that good news for you and I today? No matter how big our rap sheet is, no matter how much regret and shame we have when we look back at our past, that we worship the God of Jacob. Not a perfect people, but the God who is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love. But not only that, in his identity, he identifies himself, and it's pretty surprising, as a worship leader, that he got to praise the Lord. It says, the anointed of the God of Jacob, the sweet psalmist of Israel. Think about that. The one thing that David, and I don't even consider this bragging, but the one thing that David is, is really kind of proud of in his identity is that I got to lead God's people in worship. Think about it. What do we normally think of David? If, if, if I'm David, 
and I'm in his shoes, I think things I would brag about, because I know my human heart, is I would probably introduce myself as the guy who killed Goliath. That would be up there. You might have heard the top 10 song about Saul killed his thousands. I killed my tens of thousands. Yeah, that's about me. I have a, I have a friend. Um, we're not close friends. We were closer in college. But he was an Olympian. He was in the Winter Olympics. Uh, I think once, maybe, I know once, maybe twice. And I made a comment that you never say, I guess, to Olympians. Like, but you never won a medal. So, like, can you really say you're an Olympiad? And he did not take that well. He's like, I've been in more Olympics than you. And I said, yet. Yet. But you understand, like, I think we have, an, we have a tendency to like to really brag about what we've accomplished. Our, our mountaintop experiences, our successes. And, and it, this, is, this is where I feel like we start seeing the best of David, even in these words. There's no mention of him being a, a warrior this great king, he said, man, I got to lead God's people. I got to write songs to worship and to exalt the God of my salvation. Psalm 51, 15, which is such a fitting psalm because this is the psalm he wrote after Nathan rebukes him. He says, oh Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. So he gloried in the fact that he got to lead God's people in worship. So before we move on, what I want to challenge each and every one of us is where does your identity lie? Do you have a humble disposition? Do you realize that it was God who raised you up to salvation? Do you realize that you were much more like Jacob and David than Jesus? That you needed grace, that you needed mercy, that you needed forgiveness? Or are you proud of your position, your successes, your accomplishments? Ultimately, is God the reason that you boast? You see, the one you boast in, is he the one you point towards? So we see the position. Secondly, let's look at the preview. Read verses uh, two to four with me. So it says, the Spirit of the Lord, it speaks by me. His word is on my tongue. The God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me. You see, David not only reflects on his position in the Lord, how he got here, he also considers his role, his function as God's anointed. In this preview, one, he sees that he testifies that God spoke to and through him. And this is really remarkable that, that God had a unique relationship with David, that God talked with David. And this was contrasted be, be, from the previous king, if you recall. If you recall the previous king, Saul, 1 Kings 13, and the Spirit of the Lord, it rushed upon David from that day forward. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul. And then 1 Samuel 28, 6, and when Saul inquired of the Lord, the Lord did not answer him. So it was key, it was significant that he had access to God. I had an opportunity yesterday for the birthday of one of my boys. Got to go see the Cleveland Cavs, unfortunately, lose in the playoffs yesterday at the game. But while we were there, I saw, I'm also a Cleveland Browns fan, in case you didn't know, which I probably have said it many a times from the pulpit, 
Uh, Miles Garrett, one of my favorite players, was at the game. He was about from here, maybe to the front, to the door right there, probably that distance-ish. He was with another player, and I could not figure out what the other player was. So I went down. No, I didn't. I would have been escorted out of the facility. Why? I don't have access to Miles Garrett. I couldn't pick up my phone and say, hey, Miles, it's Joe. Hey, how are you? Good. Good game, right? Uh, I'm up here. Who are you sitting with? I can't really recognize who it is. I don't have that kind of access with this guy. But what David is saying is like, I have access with God. That over the course of the kingship, I've been able to commune with God, to, to speak to God. But it wasn't just that he had that kind of a relationship with God. He actually spoke through David. And this is crucial with what we're about to see. That God spoke through David. Actually, in the book of Acts, David, and we always consider David the king, but in the book of Acts, guess what they call David? They call him a prophet. Acts 2.30. Being therefore a prophet, he, speaking of David, foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. We see this later in Psalm 16. Elsewhere, David, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He's not speaking of his own forsakenness as much as it's prophetically speaking of what the words that Jesus will say when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So what we need to understand in this preview that one of David's roles was to speak about the Christ, to speak forward about his lineage. So not only does he testify that God spoke to and through him, he testifies that God shines through him and his house. So continue on. It says, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So he's speaking of what happens when a king is faithful. He's speaking of what is possible when a king is obedient, the fruit of this obedience, that it's an encouragement to the people, that it, it brings life. And, and remember, this is David at the end, and as we look back at David's life, let's be brutally honest. How often was that characteristic of David's kingship? A very small window, unfortunately. In other words, this has to be talking about something or someone else than David. If not, we're looking at history in a revisionist way. And we're dangerous of doing that, aren't we? Kind of looking back and, and making something better in our country. Constantly we're, we're, we're reinterpreting history and saying, oh, it was the good of times and, and everything. And, and it's sometimes not the case. Israel was guilty of that, were they not? They're out in the wilderness and they're looking back and says, man, the good old days were when we were where? Egypt, in slavery and in bondage. That is not true. So David is not the fulfillment of these words. Now, there was times that he was in a very small preview way. He was shining forth what a righteous, just king looks like. But what he's ultimately saying is, there is going to be someone who's going to come from my line, from my throne, and he's going to be that king. He's going to be the king who brings encouragement, who dawns on 
them like the morning light. He's going to be the one that sun, shines forth on a cloudless morning. He is going to be the one that is like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. So he is the one that's going to bring encouragement. He is going to be the one that brings light. Revelation 19.11 speaks, Now I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges. That's the king David is prophetically speaking of in these last words. And David realized that in his best, he was a foreshadowing of the Christ, but he was not the Christ. Just like uh, John the Baptist would say, I am not the one. I am just one in the wilderness speaking forth, prepare the way of the Lord. Well, one, do you see how blessed we are that we get to commune with God? That though David's relationship was unique, it's no more unique than you and I when it comes to our relationship with God. That we get to communicate with God. That we have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And that God has spoken to us. And as we speak God's word, God can speak through us to others. Not in the same way as the infallible scriptures of us, but God speaks through us to people's lives. But not only that, God shines through us like he shined through David. Well, are you shining in your workplace, in your schools, in your neighborhood, amongst your family and friends? Do people see Jesus when they see you? Because that is what he's celebrating, but ultimately he's celebrating that somebody's going to come who's going to be far better than you and I foreshadowing Jesus, we're going to see the one who is Jesus. So we see the position, we see the preview. Let's now look at the promises. Read verse 5 with me. It says, For God uh, does not my house stand so with God, for he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire? Notice the emphasis on the covenant that was cut. Uh, so next week and then the following week will be the last two weeks in 2 Samuel. We'll finish 2 Samuel, Lord willing. And then we will begin, I believe it's the first Sunday of, of May, we're going to begin the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, Andy and I are very excited to, to preach through Matthew. Uh, the reason we're doing Matthew is because First and Second Samuel are ultimately pointing towards a better king. And Matthew is the gospel that emphasizes the fact that David, the son of David, is Jesus. So, so that's why. So we're, we're seeing that. And in, in, in even in this passage right here, David is, is drawing our, our focus that there is going to be one who's going to fulfill the promises made to David. 2 Samuel 7, 11, Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you, notice this word, house, will make you a house. And we're not talking about a building. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up, raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And, and, and that finds ultimately fulfillment in Jesus so David is nearing the end of life, and he's not anxious. Notice that. He's not worried. He's, he's not concerned. 
I mean, you and I, when we're about to die, and if we have any time to prepare, normally speaking, there's some anxiety, some worry. And if it's not about your life, you're worried about those you're leaving behind. How are they going to be able to fend for themselves? Are they going to be okay? I'm so worried about that. And we don't hear that. We don't see that with David here because he knows he has a promise. I am guilty of being wooed by warranties. When I buy a product, I love warranties. I love extended warranties. One of my friends here consistently tells me, stop getting the extended warranty. You don't need it. Worst case, you have to buy another product like that. Stop doing the extended warranties. Now, the unfortunate reality is a couple times I've gotten the extended warranty, and I don't know what extent the warranty was, because when I went to actually get a refund to get something repaired, they said, yeah, that's not covered under the warranty. And I said, what? Like, what's the point of the warranty? It's like, well, it's covered for this and this and this. But like, this is what happened. I expected in like, it's a very limited warranty. So I'm a skeptic now. One of the stores I'll plug that I love how they deal with it, Costco. I'm making no money on this. I am not an official sponsor of Costco. If Costco hears this and wants to work some deal with me, I'm open to it. But Costco, it's amazing. Like, I return stuff there all the time. I mean, legitimately, they know me at the return desk. Because we'll buy stuff, and Abby's like, worst case, you return it. I'm like, yes, worst case, I return it. So we return it all the time, but they're so good. Like, we bring food, half-eaten food. We, we ate a little bit of it. We didn't like it. They're like, okay, return it. Well, like, God is far greater than any warranty. Do you understand that? God is far greater than any guarantee that when he makes a promise, it is guaranteed, 100% certain. Because when the covenant is cut, we can have covenant confidence that God made a promise. That's why David could look, and he's not even slightly concerned. Listen to what he says. He made with me an everlasting covenant. I'm about to die. There's still chaos in my family, but I know beyond a shadow of a doubt that there is going to be a king who comes after me that's going to save and redeem my people. And I don't even worry about it. It is ordered in all things. It is secure, for he will he not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. And what he's saying by that is, will he not make good on his promise? Because you and I, we have we struggle with promises, right? We struggle with guarantees. We were talking about lying with the little kids. And I was like, I try to not lie. And like one, my one kid, he's like, you do lie though, dad. And I'm like, thank you. And he's like, well, you'll say, he's like, you'll make a promise. And then sometimes you don't, don't fulfill on it. And I'm like, that's true. And I'm like, technically, that is a lie. So I've stopped all promises in the Hillridge household. So if they ask to do something, I always say, we'll see. We'll see if it happens. Good for you. Praise the Lord. If it doesn't happen, hey, I never promised, didn't lie. God doesn't do that. It's guaranteed. He can speak it. It's it's assured. Romans 8.31, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who are you? trusting in today? What are you trusting in today? Even as Ray was praying just about the chaotic world that we find ourselves in, I think if you're not trusting like David trusted, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be afraid. 
You're going to be uh, anxious and worried. But if you're standing on the rock, if your confidence is in Christ and in God's promises, no matter what is going on, we need not worry. Are you in covenant, though, with the Lord? Because that's, that's the distinction we need to make here, that if, if you're in covenant with the Lord, you don't need to worry. That God has made a promise that he will deliver on. Do you have peace in what the Lord is doing? Do you have confidence or doubt? Are you certain what awaits you for all eternity? So we see the position. We saw the preview, the promises. But David, I, I love the fact that this, these last words don't end at verse 5. Because <laughs> if they end at verse 5, they, they, five, they kind of sound idealistic. Like, that's great. But he allows verse 6 and 7 to be in there, led by the Holy Spirit, because uh, it's real. It's transparent. It's what life is like. It's filled with obstacles. First thing we see is that enemies will arise. He says, but worthless men are like thorns that are thrown away, for they cannot be taken with the hand. So he's acknowledging that there are going to be opposition, that there's going to be resistance. Uh, worthless men, it's something that has been said several times in First and Second Samuel. Uh, first, we saw it earlier on with Eli's sons. They were worthless men. Most recently, it was Sheba who had, he had rose up uh, against David. He was a worthless man. But notice what they're equated to. They're equated to thorns. Can you think of the first time in the Bible when thorns are mentioned? What book in the Bible? Let's guess. Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. That was after the fall. This was part of the curse. It says, thorns and, verse 18, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the, the field. And the idea then that these thorns are the byproduct of the curse. And we see those thorns not just being thorns out in the field. It becomes people. It becomes the resistance. It becomes what was preceded in these verses that I will put enmity between you and the woman. And that there will be this opposition and resistance. And, and David has already experienced a lot of resistance on a personal level up to this point, has he not? Constant opposition to his reign and his kingdom in his family, by the Philistines, uh, and what we see is that is kind of par for the course with God's kingdom. That enemies will arise, enemies will fall. I remember a game we used to play in elementary at our school, and you might have, have played something similar. It was called King of the Hill. There was a, a decent-sized hill in the back of our school playground, and I, like they would probably never allow this in 2023. But back then, the biggest, strongest kid would typically be King of the Hill. They'd be up there, and everybody's trying to push everybody off, and whoever was on the top of the hill, at the end of it, he was the king of the hill, and then everybody, and then if somebody knocked him off, they would have a new king of the hill. And what we see with David, and he's very aware of this, very self-aware, is that everybody keeps trying to get to become the king of the hill. And they keep coming, but enemies come. But at the end of the day, who's the king of the hill? The king of kings. So enemies will arise. Satan's minions will always be opposing the king and his people. Uh, and we need to understand that. We need to be mindful of that. In the church, we should be surprised when we don't have resistance. 
We should be caught off guard when it's smooth sailing and there's no pushback by the world. We are the aroma of life to the believer. We are the aroma of death to the unbeliever. So enemies will arise, but ultimately enemies will be defeated and judged. He goes on to say, but the man who touches them arms himself with iron and a shaft of a spear, and they are utterly consumed with fire. They're thrown away like the thorns. They're consumed with fire. Uh, One of the, the activities I've noticed a lot of my neighbors doing over the last week because it's so beautiful outside is spring cleaning in their yard. So they're cutting up branches and raking up leaves. And I keep saying, I'm going to do that tomorrow. And tomorrow turn to another week. So maybe this next week. But that's what they're doing. They're cleaning. They're getting ready. And what, what David is alluding to is that God is going to do that with his enemies on an eternal level. That this is really a promise of judgment. David has already seen some of that. That these men resisted the king, resisted the kingdom, that the outside of the covenant, the warning for all who don't trust in Jesus Christ. Matthew 13, verse 41, the Son of Man will send his angels and they will gather out his kingdom and all causes of sin and all lawbreakers and they will throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So I have to ask, are you overwhelmed by your enemies? Has the resistance of this world discouraged you? Will God make things right? Will God judge his enemies? Will you be judged apart from Christ? There's that tension here, and we'll look at it a little bit uh, in, in the near future as we are celebrating communion But we need to understand that God is the God of love, but he is also the God who will judge. There's a song from 1969 uh, by uh, the very famous singer Frank Sinatra. And it's a song, as you you consider the lyrics, it's a a very self-absorbed, kind of a prideful, kind of an arrogant song as you Look back at your life. The lyrics go, the end is near. I face the final curtain. Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do. I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more, I did it. I did it my way. David is at the end of his life and praise the Lord. David's final words weren't, I did it my way. If anything, his words are focused more on God. I mean, think about it. David, all these psalms he wrote, he killed Goliath. The kingdom was still pretty impressive at the time of his death. David could have looked much like Nebuchadnezzar and said, look at the kingdom that I have built. He could have looked at his legacy. He, he could have stressed all of the statues that needed to be made to commemorate him. 
He could have even have used this time to defend his shady past. Kind of an apology to her. I was misunderstood. I'm, I'm sorry for all I did. But no, the beauty of these words is that David's focus was not on my way, but God's way. That he pointed to the Lord, that he had learned a lesson that the kingdom and the kingship mattered nothing without God. That it was nothing without having God in his life from first to last. That God is the foundation. And friends, I, I hope and pray that each and every one of us, whenever our last words are, whenever we breathe our final breath, that we can look back and say, I didn't do it my way, I did it God's way. And what matters in this moment is that I knew God, that I built my life on the rock. Consider words of Jesus as we close. Matthew 7, 24, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rains fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fail. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. Are you building your life on the rock? Let's pray. God, as we come before you right now, we are so thankful for the life and the story of David. Sometimes we get so frustrated with David. Sometimes we can be so judgmental and, and so self-righteous and say, well, if I was in his shoes, I wouldn't have done what he had done. But truth be told, David is no different than each and every one of us. He needed a savior. He needed someone to come through his line that would save and redeem. He needed a true Messiah. And we thank you for Jesus. We thank you uh, for uh, who he is and what he has accomplished. And we do hope and we pray that we would be a people who, at the end of the day, can even echo Paul's words and say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the race, I have kept the faith, and now in store for me is the crown of righteousness. Until that day, Lord, we pray that you would use us to bring good to others and to bring glory to your name. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.